Don't you just enjoy worship together, lifting our voices? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews as we're going through. We're going to be in the, the fifth chapter today. The book of Hebrews is, uh, I think, a really unique book when we begin to understand the, the relationship between the Old Covenant that, that God had with people and the people of Israel and the New Covenant that Jesus has then established for us today. Um, chapter 5, which we're entering into right now, chapter 5 through chapter 9, really, I think, is, is a pivotal point and, and, and a very huge focus and dynamic area of the, the entire book because it deals with Jesus being the high priest and what that means for us. I mean, we, we don't have a high priest today. We're, we don't often see sacrifices being made for the, for the sins of other people. That's just, it's out of there. It's, it's gone. And especially under the Old Covenant and Israel, they no longer offer up sacrifices there. But here in chapter 5 through 9, we discover that the focus is on Jesus and his superior priesthood compared to the priesthood of Aaron under the Old Covenant. His, his priesthood is much better than anything that has ever been established before, and we'll, we'll kind of look a little bit into that today. Um, <clears throat> Jesus has proven that by the things that he has done in this world and by being able to live within this world in a, in a sinless manner and then offer himself up as a sacrifice for our sins is a unique thing that had never taken place before because the priest could not do that on behalf of the people because they themselves were sinful. The priests under the Old Covenant were what we might call bridge builders to God. The people were no longer able to really communicate with God because of sin that had entered in, and so you needed somebody that was that intermediary that would kind of speak on your behalf to God. And so daily, daily, the people of Israel would go to the temple, and they would confess their sins to their priest, and then he would take the offering that they had brought with him, whether it be a dove or a ram or a bull or whatever, or maybe a meal offering of some kind of grain, and then they would give that to God in interceding on behalf of the people of Israel. Now, the priesthood was specific in that you had to be under a certain family line, the lineage of Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. And so God took the Levite tribe and he said, you all are going to be the priest in the house of God. And so every priest from then on had to be a priest that was direct descendant of Aaron and, and Moses, primarily Aaron in, in, in his life. So we look, at, we look at the Old Testament and the covenant they had there, and now we're jumping into the New Testament. We're going to discover here in chapter 5 that Jesus Christ becomes a high priest for us no longer in the order of Aaron, but in the order of a new individual with this unique name called Melchizedek. And we'll get into that a lot in chapter 7. So Jesus now can not only be the one who is the sacrificial lamb, as John proclaimed him to be, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but he's also the high priest who's going to offer up that sacrifice on our behalf. Now, last week I mentioned that there was a curtain that was in the Holy of Holies and the Most Holy Place that kind of separated. If you remember the diagram, you, you had the temple building, and you walked into the Holy Place there, and it's where they would offer up their, their incense and sacrifices. But then there was a curtain that separated that from the inner chamber. 
in which the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat was upon. And in that, there was also the presence of God that would come down and reside above that mercy seat on the Day of Atonement so the priest could go in and offer up the sacrifice. But Jesus comes in to this world to establish a new priesthood, one which he is going to be the high priest in, and we have to put our faith in him in order for him to be that intermediary between us and God. But he offers up a new and a better way because no longer is it going to be that we have to send a priest through the curtain to God or no longer is it a place where he's distant and separate and afar from us but because of Jesus we ourselves can approach the very throne of grace by the blood of Jesus and what he has done. So it's a unique thing that we're going to look at. So Chapter 5, I want to kind of divide a few things here, beginning in verse 1 through 4. We're going to find three qualifications for being a high priest. And those are being appointed by God, being sympathetic with men whom they're going to minister to, and also offering up sacrifices on their behalf. But verses 5 through 10 of Hebrews 5, we see how Jesus fulfilled all those qualifications in himself in establishing this new covenant. So let's begin in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. But of this he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Well, let's look at the qualifications for becoming a high priest. What would it take? What would you have to do in order to become a high priest? Well, the first one is this, that you had to be appointed by God from among men to be a priest. That was one of the qualifications that God had established. So you had to be a man in order to be a high priest. The priesthood then was established so that there might be this mediator between sinful man and a holy God. And the priest had to be able to understand the nature of those whom he was representing before God. So he had to be a man. He had to be someone in human form to be able to do that. And when establishing God's expectations for this high priest and for the priesthood in general and for worship he talked with Moses and he set up specific guidelines as to what the priests were supposed to do. You can go look in the book of Leviticus and you'll see in chapter 19 in particular, there's all kinds of things that are set up. But in Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, God gives us the introduction to this priesthood. And he has this conversation with Moses and he says this, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. God didn't choose anything else, anybody else. He, he could have chosen angels who were before his throne room all the time. We, we know that his angels are there in his very presence, but he did not choose the angels, even though they were God's messengers. So he would send angels into this world to communicate what he wanted us to know from time to time. But he doesn't even choose the angels to become a high priest or even a priest. He chooses people from the line and the lineage of Aaron his sons and their descendants, to fulfill this role that he's establishing for us. And only a man can be subject to the temptations that we ourselves are subjected to. 
So he had to be able to be a man to understand this. Now, if we remember who this letter was written to, it was written to the Hebrews. It was written to the, the Jewish Christians who had lived for so long underneath this Old Testament covenant, offering up sacrifices daily and having somebody intercede on their behalf for their past sins. So as he's writing to these, the important thing is that we have to understand that the Jesus is going to come into play and experience things like us so he can become the high priest that they are as well. Now, the problem lies in this point when it comes to the Jews about Jesus. They understood that God had prepared for them long ago a Messiah, and that Messiah was going to come and he was going to reign, he was going to establish his kingdom, that it was going to be an everlasting kingdom, and that the world would find salvation through him. And they, they got that. But the problem is they thought he was going to be an earthly king and priest, and not one that comes from heaven is going back. And, and really what was confusing for them was the fact that their Messiah, whom they understood, they didn't think him that he was going to be God in flesh. So this is a little bit different for them when we begin to look at Jesus because he is going to come from heaven to remove his glory, take on flesh and blood, and become just like us. Why? So he can be among us, be among men, so that he can be appointed by God from among us to serve as our high priest. They didn't quite get that. And so for them to look at Jesus as God in the flesh, it was the furthest thing from their mind. And so that's the problem that they would have right now. And so our book here of Hebrews is going to lay out for them the importance of why Jesus had to give up his glory in heaven and had to take on the form of man so that he could relate to us. And the very answer to their problem was the only way that they would be able to come into this relationship with God and have their sins forgiven. Now, under the Old Covenant, and even under the covenants that God had made with other people such as Noah and Abraham... God was unapproachable. It all goes back to the, to the book of Genesis, the very beginning of creation. We know that he made Adam and Eve and he placed them in the garden and they were supposed to be there and to tend the garden and to enjoy the fruit that's there and, and, and to enjoy life to its fullest. And, and often in the cool of the evening, Scripture said, God would come and he would walk through the garden with Adam. I mean, that's, how would you like to have, you know, on a, on a cool Saturday night, that's not here in July, but on a cool Saturday evening that God would come and just take a stroll with you through a garden. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But that ended because of sin. And, and not only did God not come to earth to walk with Adam, but he sent an angel with a sword that was guarding the gateway and the entrance into the Garden of Eden so that they could not go back in, primarily for the tree of life that was there in the center of that garden. And God was in, and so God was separated from mankind. And even when he talked with Noah, and we know the wonderful story about Noah and how God saved him and his family, but destroyed the rest of the world. And he had this relationship with Noah because of Noah's righteousness and because of Abraham's righteousness. He had this relation, but everybody else, it was distant. He was not approachable by all of us. And so God said, because of that, I have to establish a way for you to communicate 
and to offer up your sacrifices to me. And so he established this priesthood. And when Moses was on the mountain listening to God, the people were warned, you can't even come on the mountain. You've got to stay down there in the foothills because he was unapproachable. And during the time of the tabernacle, when it wandered with them in the wilderness and they'd set it up to worship God, or even the temple when it was in Jerusalem, there was that veil that separated God from the people and only one man, one time a year, had the ability to approach God with fear and trepidation, lest he himself be killed. And so we've got this thing that's going to take place. So God now, in sending his son Jesus Christ, he no longer wants to remain separate from mankind and unapproachable by us, but he enters into our world and he experienced everything on our level so that he might be sympathetic with us, that he might be merciful and faithful in obedience to his Father. Now, if God had, had never become man, if he had never entered into this world, then he could never have accepted the role of high priest that would be able to intercede on our behalf because he has to be able to know us, to understand us, to feel the same things that we feel. And so Jesus had to do that so he could sympathize with man to offer up our sacrifice for us. And the incarnation of Christ really was not an option. I mean, it was a necessity that God come into this world through his son Jesus the second thing is, is, is he also had to be God's man. He had to be appointed by God. It was something that you couldn't just appoint yourself to be. He had to be appointed by God. And any priest out there had to be appointed by God as well. That's why he chose Aaron and his sons. Nobody else could enter into that. However, Josephus is a historian about the time of Jesus when he lived in this world. And he records for us some things that were taking place in the high priesthood in Jerusalem things that were against the covenant that God had established. So listen to what he says in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews. He said that after the Roman occupation of Israel, the office of high priest became corrupted, and the Mosaic regulations were often disregarded. It appears that the sacred position became a matter of purchase or acquired because of friendship with the king. Did you catch that? You see what had happened in, even in Israel, even in the time in which Jesus was living, the high priest who would come in to offer up the sacrifice, some of them did not deserve to be the high priest because they were not of Aaron's line. And so if they had money, they could buy their way in. If they had a connection with the king, maybe a relative or a friend, he might appoint them to be high priest for that year. And it became a position of political power. Matter of fact, King Herod even appointed one of his uh, relatives who was 17 years old to become the high priest. And so he was the high priest for a year. But Josephus is telling us that they had disregarded all the regulations that Moses had established with God there for the priesthood. But a true priest, and especially the high priest, had to be appointed by God on behalf of men. So listen to what verse 4 says. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 3, it says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. 
He had to be able to offer up a sacrifice for himself because of his own sins. Now, the second qualification to be a priest, and a high priest in particular, is this. You had to have the ability to be sympathetic with men. Sympathy was important. So Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2 says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. See, compassion is necessary anytime we're dealing with people in life. We've got to be compassionate. And over and over again, you will see that Jesus would stop and have compassion on the people. A high priest had to have compassion on those whom he was serving. Now, the word that is used in here in, in verse 4, or verse 2, that says, deal gently, that's one Greek word. And, and the word is metriopathene, metriopathene. And what it means is this. It means to measure or to suffer. It's a compound word of two words that are put together. All right? Metron and pasco. And so they join these two words, and it's not used in any other context except for right here. It's a unique word that he says. And it means to suffer to a measured limit. So the priest, in order for him to deal with other people, he also had to know what it was to suffer like them to a measured limit. And it had to be in this kind of this middle of the road aspect. Otherwise, he's one extreme or the other. If he's too sympathetic, then, then he is going to go right into them and, and he, would, he would begin to cry with them over their anxiety of what they've committed to sin or the grief that they're bearing. Or if he's the other extreme, he's become callous and apathetic, then he's just doing a job and saying, well, give me your money, give me your offering, I'll do this here and you guys next. It's not like that at all. He had to be somewhere in the middle of the road so he could deal gently with people in their circumstances and he had to understand that. So when we look at a person who has the ability to be sympathetic or apathetic, they can't serve that way. But they've got to have the ability to understand to a certain limit what we're going through. When we consider what people struggle with, it's important that we know what they're feeling in that time. So a useful priest is one who can relate kind of in the middle ground. The priest system was set up to deal with the sins of the people. And so in verse 2, it, it uses the word ignorant and wayward. Some translations use these other words like unintentional or misguided. Now when God established the opportunity to offer sacrifices for sin, it was dealing with these types of sin, the sins that were not premeditated, the sins that were not intentional. It was the sins that something happened and you, you accidentally or mistakenly did it and and now you've got to have an offering of a sacrifice for your sin. So listen what it says in, in Numbers chapter 15, verse 28. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. The priest is ministering on behalf of the person whose sins were unintentional or mistaken or not premeditated. There was, however, no provision made for a sacrifice for somebody who sinned intentionally. Listen to what it says just a couple of verses later in Numbers 15, verse 30. But the person who does anything with a high hand, some translations may say defiantly or deliberately, so, but a person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. 
So you have to understand that the sacrifice is being made for somebody who did not mean to sin. And so those sins are forgiven. But if you intended to sin, belligerently went against God, there's no sacrifice for that. Hebrews will get onto that even more so when we get into chapter 10. These deliberate sins. God doesn't appreciate deliberate sins. He wants us to always come before Him. And so the emphasis here with the priest and the sacrifice is one on sympathy. And the high priest was meant to have sympathy toward anyone who, who was acting in ignorance or acting in, in an unintentional way. And since the priest himself was a sinner, he also had to offer up sacrifice for himself before he could offer up a sacrifice for you. And so the third qualification is this, the sacrifice. A priest had to be able to offer up sacrifices for men. Now there are two different types. There's an offering of gifts and there's an offering of sacrifice. So those two different things. The offering of gifts is something that's not burned necessarily on the altar, that the blood is poured out on everything. It's, it could be a gift of money, a gift of jewelry, a gift of gold, of silver. It could be a gift of your first of your harvest, of your grain. Those are offering gifts. But the offering sacrifice had to be something that had the lifeblood in it and that was taken because death demands the blood. Because sin created the opportunity for death, we have to offer up a sacrifice that something's going to die. So we have these two different types. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 3, it says this, Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Sacrifices were done for compensation of our sins. And they could not take away the tendency to sin, all they could do was forgive you for the past and previous sins you had committed. So the sins that you did today, you need to offer up a sacrifice for. The sins you did last week, you need to offer up a sacrifice for. You need to confess those and offer up a sacrifice. But the sacrifice is not for the sins that you're going to commit tomorrow or the sins you might commit five years from now. It's only sins from your past. And there'll be a difference in Jesus here in a minute. So offering sacrifice was really the primary work of the priest. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. The temple there in Jerusalem is a bloody, bloody place. And it wasn't just confined right there in the temple itself, but when you came, he would often kill whatever the sacrifice was that you were offering, and he would then sprinkle the blood on you, as well as sprinkling the blood on himself and sprinkling the blood on the altar. It was a messy thing. And day after day, this was their job, to offer up sacrifice for the sins of people. Plus, before he could do that, he had to offer up a sacrifice for himself. So there's a double sacrifice going on for your sins. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 5, 5 and 6. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the second aspect in this chapter is this, that Jesus fulfills all the qualifications necessary for him to become a high priest. 
First off, he was appointed by God. Again, the writer of Hebrew chooses to, to bring the Old Testament covenant into play and the prophecies that were, were spoke about. So he quotes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and Psalm 110, verse 4. And he supports how Jesus is then appointed to himself. The Jewish reader understands that, that those two passages are messianic passages. They're prophecies about the Messiah coming into this world. And so he uses those two passages here to say that this is Jesus fulfilling these prophecies. They knew that the Messiah was supposed to be both a king and a prince, but he was going to be appointed by God, selected by God from among them to fulfill this. And yet Jesus, knowing who he truly was, being both a king and a prince, he doesn't flaunt it. Knowing that he is the Son of God, he doesn't shove that at them every time. Now we know that he had opportunities because he was there before the temple a lot. And there were often times when he might heal somebody, give them a miraculous healing. They might be able to be able to see with their eyes again or to walk or who knows what it was. But then he would say to them, don't tell anybody. Let's keep this quiet. Just go home and, and go back to life. Because he didn't want them sharing the fact that he was doing these things and that, that they were now recognizing him quite possibly as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And so he wanted them to be quiet upon it for a while. Listen to what he says in John chapter 8, verse 54. He says, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. God is the one who invested in Jesus the authority and the honor of becoming the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Something different than the order of Aaron. Melchizedek, we'll get into him a little bit later in chapter 7, but I want to kind of give you a little bit about him. He just appears on the scene in the book of Genesis one day as Abraham is wandering around, and there he is. Abraham recognizes him as a king of Salem, a king of righteousness is what it's called, which is now in the present, Salem is the present city of Jerusalem. So Melchizedek was the king over that city during the time of Abraham. But not only was he king, but he was also high priest of God Almighty. And so Abraham then takes one-tenth of all he has, all his possessions, and he honors them by giving it to Melchizedek as his offering to God as a sacrifice. That's who Melchizedek is. So he is this king priest that Abraham recognizes and offers up the sacrifice to. Now there's a little bit difference in Melchizedek's priesthood because one, he's also a king. But in Aaron's priesthood under the Old Covenant, king could not be a priest. Matter of fact, when one of the king does try to offer up sacrifice, God is very upset about it. Kings are not able to do that. But under this king of Melchizedek priesthood, he can. Another thing about this Melchizedek priesthood, it's unending. We don't know when it began and we don't know where it ends. It has no beginning and no ending, but Aaron's did. Aaron's priesthood began there in the wilderness after they were rescued from the land of Egypt and establishing the covenant with God, then Aaron and his priesthood began. But Aaron's priesthood also ended in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. There is no high priest in Israel right now. 
because they cannot offer sacrifice because there's no place for them to go into the temple to offer up that sacrifice. So it's, it's, it's gone. Now, now, granted, the Jews today would like to have another high priest. They'd like to build another temple there on the mount. But God says that's not the case anymore. And so he's established a relationship now with Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek's priesthood really is a better picture of Christ and the Messiah than what Aaron's was. Jesus was also sympathetic with men. Let's look at Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. It says, In the days of, the fle- of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from the death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus was himself a man just like you and me. He had to come into this world and he was able to understand and and ideally be the, the priest that we might need because he can sympathize with us. He went through the same things that we went through in this life by taking on the flesh and becoming human. And it says there, in the days of his flesh is description of the time which the eternal son gave up his glory in heaven and he put on flesh and blood and he lived and he dwelt amongst men. Now those days were extremely important for us because he had to be here in order to be appointed by God and able to be sympathetic with us to become our high priest. Now, among the things that he did while he was here in this world, it says that he offered up prayers and supplications. Now we know that God has this response that we're supposed to pray to him, that we're supposed to offer up our our sacrifices and our thanksgivings. Jesus did that. We've seen that in his life from the very beginning. Even when his parents thought he was lost, when he was 12 years old, they ended up finding him where? In the temple. And what was his response to them? Well, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? As he grew, over and over again, he demonstrated to them his faithfulness to God. And in his ministry in this world, it was to show us that he was sympathetic with us. Over and over again, you find in Scripture that says Jesus had compassion on. He had compassion on this person. He had compassion on these people. And even when he was there on the mountain, he looked over Jerusalem and he wept because of his compassion and his sympathy for what we were about to go through. And on the night in which Jesus went to the cross, he spent time in the Garden of Gethsemane, just on the eastern side of that Temple Mount, there on the Mount of Olives, and he prayed and he agonized over what he was about to do on our behalf. The agony, the Scripture says, was so intense that he even sweat drops of blood. That's some intensity there. And all that emotion and all that feeling is going in to us because he understood what we were going to experience. And he knew what he was going to experience in just a few short hours being put on a cross. Now, surely his heart was broken over the prospect of taking himself upon himself our sins. Here he was sinless. And yet he was going to present himself as a sacrificial lamb taking on himself our sins. Now understand this. We know from the very beginning that they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden because of what? Sin. And God would not permit sin to be within his presence. 
And so he casts it away. And what is he going to do now on the cross in the flesh? He is going to take on himself our sins. Something he had never experienced as God in heaven. What sin is like, and yet he was going to do that. He was going to bear our sins so that we could find salvation in him. And so when he comes to that moment, his prayer was not that his father would save him from the cross, but that it was for the cross that he came into this world. Listen to what it says in John chapter 12, verse 27 and 28. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. A more accurate translation of Hebrews chapter 5 or 7 might be these words. To save him out of death, rather than save him from death. Jesus wasn't asking that God would not allow him to die on the cross, but that if he died on the cross with the sins of the world, he might be saved out of death. And so he's asking that his Father will place within him the authority and the power to conquer death itself. And there's where they're significant for us. Because we have to have Jesus on the cross. We know that. He had to die for our sins, but so many people could die for somebody else. But that's not significant. Nothing can be done. The power is not in the death. The power is in his resurrection. Matter of fact, Paul even tells us, if, you, if it were not for the resurrection of Jesus, if he had not come back to life, you would still be in your sins and your faith would be useless. It's futile. He had to come back to life. And so here, as he's preparing for the cross, it's not the fear of dying, but he's seeking the, the power that God and the authority that God, his Father, would give him to come back to life. Because in that sacrifice and in that resurrection, now it fulfills and it completes all sacrifices for all times for the sins of mankind. Not just the past, but the present and the future. So his opportunity to offer up sacrifice for us is significant and that he now is going to rise from the dead. Listen to what it says in Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11. He says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption or decay. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus offers up this sacrifice and he offers up this plea and this petition to God there in that garden and his father heard him and responds and how do we know he does that look what it says in verse 8 of chapter 5 although he was a son he learned obedience through what he suffered unfortunately the best way to sympathize with people is to go through everything that they experience to suffer the same way they suffer Fortunately, Jesus did that for us. I mean, you may read about what it's like to have cancer. 
But until you've had cancer, you really don't know. You, you can't imagine, you, you, can't, you can't really sympathize with those who are going through it. You've observed, you've seen, you, but, but you don't truly understand until you've gone through it. And the same thing can be said for other aspects of life. I mean, you don't know what it's like to be married until you're married. As a young man, I often thought what it would be like, but it was nothing. You, you can't know it fully until you actually experience it. You may know what it might be like to have a, a child, but until you actually have a baby and you've gone through the process of watching this baby be born within you, you fully can't sympathize with those who've done that. And we can't even sympathize with those who have lost loved ones in death until we go through it ourselves. What's it like to... To lose a spouse? I don't know. What's it like to have a child die? I, I can't experience that yet. I, I can't sympathize with I, I see what they're struggling with, but I can't feel the feeling that they are until you go through it. So Jesus went through all of this so that he could feel what we feel, so that he could understand what we've gone through, and so he can then sympathize with us and offer up a sacrifice. So he was appointed high priest. And he is the one that we need and the one who knows and understands what we're going through. Now he can offer up sacrifices for men. Hebrews 5, 9 and 10 says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You see, his suffering and his death fulfilled the third requirement. To make a sacrifice. He sacrifices himself. He offered himself as the Lamb of God, perfect, spotless, without any stain or blemish on him. To sacrifice himself on our behalf. And of course Jesus was not made perfect because he was already perfect in his holiness and his righteousness. But to be the sacrifice, that was what was perfected. And he made perfect for us this sacrifice. The sacrifice that Jesus offers is different than any sacrifice that had ever been made by any other high priest in two specific ways. The first way is this. He wasn't in need of making a sacrifice for himself because he was sinless. All the other priests, they had to sacrifice for their own sins before they could sacrifice for yours. But he didn't need to do that. The second way is this, that his sacrifice for humanity was once for all. It did not to be repeated day after day, year after year. It's one final fulfilling sacrifice because becoming the perfect high priest and becoming the, first sac the perfect sacrificial lamb, there is no need for it anymore. So he does away with it. And see, by his death, he opened the way for us to have eternal salvation. Remember, I said that it was at his death that the curtain within the temple tore from the top to the bottom. Separation was no longer there because people could see into the most holy place. And they could go directly in, and that's what Jesus has done. By his body, by his death, by his blood, he has opened for us a way into the very throne room of God. So we are no longer, is he unapproachable to us? We can go before Him 
you can go before him, I can go before him, without having to ask another priest to intercede on my behalf, without having to take a bull or a ram to offer as a sacrifice. Because what he has done, he has once and for all opened the way for us to our Father in heaven. And he did that through his obedience that's mentioned here in this verse. It's it's not about obedience to the regulations or the commandments or the laws. It's about his obedience and the calling that God had given him to come into this world and to become our high priest. Now, I want to close with this a little bit. Just after Jesus had fed the 5,000 with the fish and the loaves of bread, his disciples headed over the Sea of Galilee to the other side, and, and he's there with them, and then he goes up on the mountain to pray, just to get away for a while. And then the, the people were started looking for him the next morning. And they knew that he did not leave with his disciples, so he still had to be in the area. But they couldn't find him. And they searched and searched, and they finally figured out he's not here. So they decided that they were going to walk around over to Capernaum on the other side of the sea, because maybe he headed over there through the night. Well, he did. But not in the way that they thought. Because as his disciples were crossing the sea, he decided to walk out across the water. And just about the time they were getting to Capernaum, he joined them in the boat, and then they were there. So by the time the people all came all the way over, they find him. And listen what it says here in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? This is a key, pivotal verse right here. What do we do to be doing the works of God? So Jesus answers them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day." Trusting in God is the only work that you have to do for salvation. You you can't do anything. 
It has nothing to do with anything that you can offer up as a sacrifice. You can't purchase it. You can't work. You can't slave. You can't do anything. The only thing that you have to do is believe. Believe. Put your faith in Him, and that's where this eternal life comes from. Unfortunately and tragically, there are a lot of people who don't do that. They know about Jesus. They understand, and they can tell you facts and figures about what He did and when He did and all those things, but they don't believe in Him. They've not put their faith in Him. We've got to put our faith in Christ the Old Testament paints a picture that took thousands of years and it's filled with stories and people and laws and nations and miracles and, and religious practices and all these different things. But it all points to Jesus. Socrates, he taught for 40 years. Plato, he taught for 50. Aristotle taught for 40 years. I mean, there's a lot of times. But Jesus taught in this world for three years. And in three years, he has changed the whole course of this world. It's been said that Jesus painted no pictures. Yet some of the finest paintings of Raphael, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, they received their inspiration from him. It's been said that Jesus wrote no poetry, yet Dante and Milton and scores of the world's greatest poets were inspired by him. That Jesus composed no music, and still Haydn and Handel and Beethoven and Bach and Mendelssohn, they reached their highest perfection in music and hymns and melodies and symphonies and oratories because of their praise for him. Every sphere of human greatness has been enriched by this humble servant who came into this world so that he could relate to us, he could sympathize with us, and ultimately he would be able to become our high priest and offer up a sacrifice once and for all so that we can have eternity. And all it requires is that you believe. Do you have faith in him? That's the question you need to answer yourself today. Maybe you need to make a decision for Christ. Maybe you need to just confess Him as Lord. Repent of your sins. You need to surrender your life to Him. In whatever way pass, to be baptized into His name. Maybe you need to show your obedience to Him by living your life so that others can see your reverence and your awe of who Christ is. But don't put it off. Because we may not have tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that You have called us. But Father, you've called us into a relationship with you through your Son, Jesus, and only through Him. Father, may we experience the, the blessing of forgiveness of our sins through the sacrifice of your Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Father, through Him being our High Priest, that we don't have to fear walking into your very presence in the throne room of heaven because He stands there interceding on our behalf. Father, may we revere you and stand in awe with love and obedience so we can relate to the sacrifice that your Son has made for us. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.